This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvel as the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing on the ABC News Channel. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast and PK. Soon we're going to be joined by Channel 9's political editor, Chris Yulman, discussing a whole lot of things. But PK, the spirit of compromise has descended again over National Cabinet. The Prime Minister asked the states and territories to lift the number of overseas travellers they'll take into their home states. It's been capped at 4,000. The Prime Minister's asked them for 6,000 and apparently they've said yes. That decision's been made. That starts Friday week. We'll get 2,000 more people in coming through normal commercial flights. They'll go through the normal hotel quarantine arrangements. There's plenty of hotel rooms in, in all of those cities. So, PK, everyone's agreed, it would seem. And then the next thing is, is this the answer to the pressure the government's been under to help stranded Australians get home? What do you think? Well, I think, Fran, it is an answer. Is it the answer? No, it's not finished, is it? Um, This is something that has not been sealed and delivered because the states haven't all agreed. It hasn't been sort of this unanimous agreement. In fact, there was so much politics in the response. Uh, We saw, for instance, Mark McGowan, the WA Premier, come out and and say it's not in the spirit of national cabinet, you know, essentially that the federal government has gone it alone. But let's just give it some context 27,000 Australians are stranded overseas. They want to come home. If you speak to any MP in the parliament, doesn't matter what political party they're in, they'll tell you this is one of the most strong, overwhelming complaints they're getting. So if there's one bipartisan thing, it's that everyone agrees you've got to get these people home. And just to give it some context again that makes sense to me, right? I mean, these are Australians. They have Australian citizenship. They have a right to come home. They should be coming home. And that's why you've seen even Anthony Albanese get on this bandwagon this week. It's been a huge theme of the week saying, Mm. you know, the government should get um, uh, chartered flights, should get, you know, use the government um, aeroplanes to try and get them all home. The federal government's answer was, hang on a minute, uh, there's enough spare seats and capacity. It's about the the states lifting those caps. But what's been at the heart of the problem is, I think, the bungle in Victoria. The quarantine bungle meant that I think everyone's a little bit nervous about increasing capacity and how to do that. Victoria's still not taking people in, and I think most people agree that that's reasonable given the outbreak, the second wave, the the bungle, and and the inquiries going on. There is the federal inquiry Jane Holton is in charge of. Uh, You need some sort of conclusion about how quarantine will work. But the PM didn't have a deal with everyone, with every state, about lifting the caps or how to do it. And it's actually, in my view, I'd love to hear what you think. I think it's been actually quite messy, uh, but clearly an answer has to be provided because you've got to get these people home. Yeah, I think it's been a complete mess. I mean, we had... Um you know, Stephen Marshall, the South Australian Premier, on my program in the morning telling the country that he was going to offer at the Friday meeting to increase South Australia's intake to 800. And then we hear that that's already been worked out with Michael McCormick, the Deputy Prime Minister, who sent a letter off to the states. And then we hear that, that the WA Premier, Mark McGowan, was absolutely filthy, that he hadn't heard about that letter, he hadn't received the letter before he was told about it by a journalist. So he was unhappy with that process. 
process. I don't think everything is necessarily looking locked down in terms of the states all doing more. Mark McGowan in particular said if his state does more, they will need Commonwealth help to do it safely and maybe even Commonwealth-run facilities. Let's have a listen. There are Commonwealth facilities out there, defence bases, immigration facilities that could be used for two weeks quarantine for people returning from overseas. I'd urge the Commonwealth to have a look at those facilities uh, at, you know, as a, as a measure that can deal with uh, any of the more extreme pressures we're currently going through. Okay, that was a challenge to the federal government to open up some of their Commonwealth-run facilities. The government's not falling for that, though. It doesn't want... It's showing every sign of not wanting to take control of, of overseas travellers' quarantine itself. Why not? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I interviewed Simon Birmingham, the, the Trade and Tourism Minister, and asked him that. I mentioned that, of course, when it first started this this hideous period of our lives, this awful pandemic, uh, we were getting people back from Wuhan and putting them on Christmas Island, right? So obviously the, the federal government at that stage, at the sort of infancy of the outbreak, was trying to manage it in a different way. The world has changed a lot since then. The spread of the virus, obviously, is now across the world. And in fact, you know, the virus is coming from the UK, from, from you know, lots of uh, European countries, from mm. the US. It's really shifted. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons he cited. He said convenience is a big one. You want you want them quarantining you know, near cities where the commute is easy, not in these remote locations. And cost has got to be a big one, Fran. When you have people in remote places like Christmas Island, uh, and he, he also mentioned, of course, that Christmas Island is being used for other reasons now. But if when you do that, it, it's kind of a very costly exercise as well. There is, of course, also the politics, as as you rightly point out. Uh, there's the sense that the states should be lifting more, should be taking more responsibility, and and dealing with this because the federal government identifies that the pressure is so strong, everyone kind of has to come up with a solution and that the states need to actually take some responsibility too. Now, they have taken responsibility so far, uh, but they're not, in my, my view, you need to have, I feel like hotel quarantining, I know the bungle was just in Victoria in terms of the outbreak, but we did see some examples in New South Wales, in Sydney as well, mm. that were also concerning, I think. I think luck was on the side of them in terms of it not becoming something much worse as a consequence. Mm. But you've got to clean this system up if you're going to increase capacity, don't you? I think that's right. I mean, it is a fraught system. There's lots of ways it can break down. I think that's what Mark McGowan was um, in inferring, as was Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland. You know, they'll do it, but they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want um, a Victoria to happen, and that's the great fear. But the thing is, PK, if we can't get enough capacity in the hotel quarantine system quickly enough, I think the pressure building from all these stranded Australians, and the numbers keep going up, started at 25,000. I think the suggestion is it could be many more than that now. The Commonwealth is going to have to get some overarching structure here. Sure, they might not want to use... Um, detention facilities. They might not want to take control of it. But we've already heard, I spoke to Alan Joyce from Qantas this week, and he told me that the federal government is speaking to Qantas about the notion of perhaps subsidising Qantas flights to go and get some more of these people. So it's all very well if there is a plan to go get more of them, and that's where the pressure's on, you've got to have somewhere to put them. So I do get the feeling now that the federal government is trying to put its stamp on this a bit more. It's left it to the states. It's now copying it you know, from, as you said, Anthony Albanese and others. So they're trying to look like they are managing it, but I think they haven't taken that final step yet.
No, that's right. Look, more will emerge. We're recording this on a Thursday morning out of National Cabinet, but I think we've given you a good taste of just where the the political positioning is. But a solution, no doubt, will have to be carved out in, in coming days. Look, I just want to change the conversation, and I don't want this podcast to ever become the Border Wars uh, <laughs> podcast, Fran, but I feel like increasingly my shows and this podcast are sort of border hour or something. But borders continue to be a problem and really show the fault lines in our federation. Premier Anastasia Palaget heads to the polls in October. She's been unwavering in her position on borders and and business and voters have largely backed her on this. But national business groups like the AI group say their Queensland members are reaching their limit. What's going on here? Who's kind of... Because this is... I always have to remind people... analysing the politics here. We're not going through the science. How does mm. Who's winning this border war? Has there well, been it, a shift? It's hard to tell. I think there has been a shift. It's whether it's a shift that changes an election result, we won't know. We won't know that till the, the end of October because that's when Queensland goes to the polls. Um, but you're right, no sign from Anastasia Palaszczuk. She's inclined to ease off the tough borders before that election date. The assessment has been generally it's a winner politically in her state to keep the, the Southerners and their virus at bay. But of course, you know, as we mentioned last week, um, there was that whole interaction with the Prime Minister and herself over that woman from the young woman from ACT who was denied um, permission to go to her dad's funeral. And that seemed to be a moment when Anastasia Palaszczuk lost the balance of this argument. It was perceived by many as unnecessarily cruel and, and you know, showing a complete lack of compassion. In fact, it's, it, it unleashed things like a Queensland lawyer paying, paying to have a banner flown across the sky saying she is heartless. That kind of commentary around a Premier is not very helpful when you're heading into an election campaign. And it's got to be remembered, the margin in Queensland is very close. This will be a a close election, even when the polls were backing her 100% on on border shutdowns. Um, It's only going to take a couple of seats to change for the fate of the government to change. So I think there's probably a few nervous Queensland Labor people looking at last week and how the the worm turned a little against the against the premier and we saw the federal government rush in basically to push that worm as far as they could but we just don't know the the premier stood stood aground and she said even if she loses the election she'll do what it takes to keep Queenslanders safe it's that sort of talk that has stood her in good stead so far but you know they're not budging Queensland is not budging. No, they're not budging. Look, it'll be so fascinating to see the election result because there's no way anyone can pretend that this has not been a dominant issue. You know, in other state election campaigns, Fran, there's this, oh, how many stories have I written? There's this federal implications analysis, yeah, we always have. What are the federal implications? And some people over-egg the federal implications, others under-egg it. Sometimes, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. But we can be quite clear that the border issue is very much central. So how that plays out, I think, will be fascinating to watch. And it's just interesting too, PK, because this week we did see some movement on borders. I'm not sure if it was this week or last. Northern Territory announced that soon New South Wales people will be allowed into the Northern Territory. The South Australian Premier announced this week that people from the ACT can go back into South Australia. Why they were ever locked down is a mystery to me. But they haven't raised the borders for people from New South Wales. So we've got... Queensland being hammered by the federal government and the New South Wales government for not opening the border to New South Wales. And yet I'm not hearing much from either of those about the South Australia 
lockdown to people from New South Wales. So there does seem to be a bit of double standard going on here. Oh, yeah, double, triple standards. There's a few somersaults. There's all sorts of of things going on, Fran. Uh, It should be noted, I suppose, that the South Australian government is a Liberal government, the Queensland government is a Labor government, just putting that out there. Yeah, and Tasmanian government too, being a uh, Liberal government and, you know, not being overwhelmingly open to people getting in. Uh, so, look, there we go. Uh, it's Politics is back, Fran. Lucky our podcast is back. Should we get our <laughs> guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Chris Ullman is political editor with Channel 9. Chris, welcome back to the party room. Fran Kelly, PK, great to be with you. It's lovely to have you here, Chris. Now, Chris, China is never far from the headlines and there's no good news here. Uh, it just, well, it's, there's no other way to describe it. It goes from bad to worse, it seems. Now, this week we got more details of the Australian police investigation into alleged foreign interference. What did you make of that development? It's been coming for a while. They passed the foreign interference laws and then they set up a task force which was going to work on this. So you would imagine now that they have those powers that they're going to do something with them and it's no great surprise that they are seeking to prosecute people on that front. So it's just, I suppose, how far it goes, how wide is the web and now we see the Sydney consul, has Chinese consul, have been drawn into it. So it's, you know, it'll be fascinating to watch but it's one thing to make claims, it's another thing to get proof and to make it stand up. So... It'll be interesting to see what's going on. Some of this, I think, might just be to put the frighteners on people. And we've seen some uh, Chinese journalists, in fact, depart the country and they may not come back. So it's a sign that the government is serious about, you know, having some prosecutions on foreign interference. Okay, but putting the frighteners on people is all very well. But putting the frighteners on the consul general is perhaps going a bit further than people thought. Beijing responded saying that the police interception of the communications of a consular official is a violation of international law. Former diplomat Alan Beam weighed in on that. The relationship itself will undergo further trauma. We can expect that they will retaliate. And for Australians resident in China, they could also become subject to all sorts of investigations, visits and so on. So a pretty dire warning there from Alan Beam. Chris, I mean, whether it is a breach of international law or not, I mean, let, you know, Beijing can argue that out, I suppose. But it is an escalate. Well, we've seen incidents like this then invite some sort of escalation and retaliation from China. We saw that with the um, the exit ban put on the two Australian journalists just a week or so ago. How worried do you think we need to be here about this tit for tat, which seems to be just escalating? Yeah, I think we should be worried about it. And obviously the relationship has changed dramatically. But the point that I would make is that China has changed and whether or not we investigate people here depends on what they're doing. And some of the things that they've been doing in Australia for years Mm. have been unconscionable. Like, you know, they make routine threats to Chinese Australian citizens. They threaten their families in China. That happens Mm. all the time. People have been sent, and I've spoken to them, have been sent from China to Australia from their security services specifically to threaten people inside our borders. Now, if we think that we should put up with that kind of behaviour, then I guess, yes, we shouldn't do anything. If we think that we need to curtail it in some way, well, this is the only way to go about it. So, you know, a lot's said about what Australia should do about this relationship. But mm. my bottom line for years now has been, well, it's China that's pushing the bounds here. Australia is simply trying to stand up for itself. 
It is definitely uh, those examples you gave, China pushing the bounds, and that's illegal. I mean, threatening people, uh, making threats like that, and then following through on threats is illegal. But it is, is it a hard line to navigate, Chris, when we're trying to talk about, we're talking, the law is foreign interference. And some people say, well, how do you differentiate between what's influence and what's interference? How do we make that judgment? Is that a fluid line? Oh, look, and it's an extremely difficult thing to do. And we've seen, you know, that the way that these laws have been crafted in the past, they've been heavy handed. In fact, when it came to foreign interference laws, one of the first people to get a letter from the Attorney General's department was the head of Channel 9 because of something we ran from Al Jazeera. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> the, the way that we go about using these laws is actually very important as well. But clearly there is an issue. It's not just here, it's around the world. And we're seeing around the world that China has become more aggressive. We constantly see this through the eyes of what's happening in Australia. I think that really genuine, there is a genuine issue that China is determined to make an example of Australia. It'll it'll deal with the United States with a whole lot more aggravation and continue to talk. In Australia, they've just stopped talking to us at the moment mm, to try which is a problem, and make isn't us recognise... Absolutely, but they're just—they're exerting their power as a rising superpower. They're letting us know that this is the way that the world's going to be run. Now the question is, how do we navigate that? That is the question of our generation. We're having mm. to deal with a more assertive China and a more mercurial United States, and that makes Australia's future very vexed indeed. And it's very difficult, I mean, economically and politically, because, as you say, China's just stopped talking, but it's not like our politicians can just vacate the field. This is a major economic relationship. We can't just be walked over and we're pushing back, and, you know, that's obviously and clearly the right thing to be doing, but we need to keep working on a way to get some common ground here, don't we? Yeah, look, I think we need to have a transactional relationship where we can settle on a set of rules that both sides are happy to live with. I think, though, that if you're a business person working with China, we keep thinking that, you know, our resources will be okay because they're the things that they need, our coal, you know, our iron ore. They do at the moment, but by the way, they're looking for other markets. So I think that we do need to, to as rapidly as we possibly can, diversify our markets. But the Australian government actually is working on that. And beyond that, it's also trying to shore up how it deals with its alliances in a future where it imagines there might not be an America. And you'll see that what's happening with Japan and what's happening with India and what's happening with Indonesia and Malaysia and Vietnam, there's a lot going on at the moment where the Australian government is trying to find like-minded countries so that in the end, if we have to, we can push back in unison. Look, I want to shift gears here. I held back on the other one, but I'm not holding back here because the government is trying to refocus the domestic debate on energy and it's made two quite significant announcements this week. And it just shows actually, while it's been focused on COVID, it's now finding ways to focus back on its other issues that were quite key before the COVID outbreak, but to equally link it to the COVID recovery. That's what it did this week when it made an announcement around gas and threatened to build a gas-fired power station in the Hunter if the if industry didn't do it itself. What's the government trying to achieve here, um, Chris, and how key is it in kind of shifting the debate in the energy debate? It's really put its, its all of its eggs in the gas basket, if I can describe it that way. Is it also an attempt to wedge labour? What's going on? Oh, look, I think, you know, all of the above perhaps, but let's like let's just lay down a starting point before we begin this conversation, which is if you had an energy plan and if we'd gotten that sliding doors moment way back, you know, 
in 2009 when we had an opportunity to put a price on carbon and have agreement from you know both major parties on that then we wouldn't be where we are now. So what we've seen ever since then is fits and starts of energy policy, and particularly inside the coalition where this has become a hugely ideological issue and the Labor Party keeps hoping it's going to win an election based on some of this stuff and it just doesn't seem to happen. So that's the starting point. But gas actually is an important transition fuel because we are actually decarbonising our energy sector. Coal-fired power plants are closing down And we've seen, though, from the evidence in South Australia, that you need to balance the rise of renewables with something that can peak quite quickly to take their place when they are removed from the marketplace. Yes, they're very cheap when they're running. They tend to run in the middle of the day when we don't need them. They tend not to be there when we need them in peak hours. And so we need to to have some sort of technology in the absence of large-scale battery technology which means that we can stabilise our system and that we can pick up to the peak demand when we need it. Yeah, well, that is the view of the former ACCC boss, Alan Fells. I spoke to him and the Grattan Institute too, that renewables aren't at the point where they can provide 100% of Australia's energy. But Fran, you spoke to Mike Cannon-Brooks, who says 100% renewables is what we should aim for. And he said, if you could just take over here, it was your interview. I'm just stealing it from you. (laughs) But it was interesting. Well, there's a lot of different views on this, obviously, and it's moved some way. I mean, I think 10 years ago, everyone was agreed gas was a transition fuel um, because it is lower emissions than coal. It's not as low. I, sp- I spoke also with um, sustainable energy expert, Professor Andrew Blakers, who said it's not as low emissions as you might think because the leakage, what they call the fugitive emissions, actually push the emissions up quite high. Um, but there is a group too now who think that we have come so far with renewable energy and so far with the storage options around that that can give that kind of continuous flow that Chris is talking about, battery storage and um, pumped hydro. Um, and we, if we get the network, the connectors in place, the transmission lines in place and w- so that we can make sure that we have the capacity to shift fuel in when the sun isn't blow- shining in one place, it's probably been shining in another place or whatever that analogy is, that we actually don't need new investment in gas because gas will become in 20 or 30 years too high emissions to fit in with our Paris goals. We're trying to get to zero emissions by 2050. So a lot of people, including Mike Cannon-Brooks, who came out this week, said to the Prime Minister basically through the airways, I've rung Elon Musk. We're talking about a plan to come up with dispatchable energy for the Hunter Valley. You know, the government's put a call out for the private industry, private sector to come up with a gas plant. He says it won't be gas, but would you... Would you look at and consider another option? So there are very different schools of thought here, aren't there, Chris? Yeah, there absolutely are. But let's look at a working example in South Australia, which now has more wind power than it needs to actually power the state. But AEMO won't let it do that because the system stability is is badly affected when you get high levels of penetration. So let's right now in South Australia, 75% wind. So it's blowing a gale there. They're exporting power into Victoria, 19% gas. It will never drop much below that because Mm. they need to keep that synchronous supply going in order to keep the system secure. But over the last 24 hours, it hasn't been uh, 75% wind. It's been 70% gas and 21% wind. That's because of what's available. There's a 100 Mm. megawatt battery in South Australia, of course. Uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Elon Musk put it there. Uh, it will power 30,000 homes for eight hours. It's really used, it's used actually to stabilise the system there at the moment. Mm. I, I don't think people realise, in fact, 
Yeah, ex- exactly. But so I don't think people realise how large the task is for Australia. At the moment, you know, one of you sitting in a studio in New South Wales where you're consuming 86% of the power that's coming through those lights is coming from black coal. One of you sitting in a studio in Victoria, 82% of that is brown coal. Now, these things are all being retired. They're going to go. Mm. Uh, and it's just a matter of how do we get to the other end? Now, the chief scientist says the fastest, more economical way to move to a reliable system of renewable energy, and we all want to get to zero, is to use gas as a transition fuel. So I think that is the the most economic way of doing it. Now, whether or not a government builds a power plant, I think that's completely unnecessary. If Mike yeah. Cannon-Brooks can deliver dispatchable power and more power to his arm, yeah. you know, it looks, if he wants to, to go out and take that risk and deliver that power, we do know in New South Wales that by the time Liddell retires that we will we'll need to start filling a void. And in New South Wales, it's about 153 megawatts or whatever it is in, in the first year, but it rises and it continues to rise for the next decade. Why? Because we're going to continue to retire coal-fired power stations in New South Wales and Victoria across that decade. Look, Chris, I'm, uh, you know, obviously the energy debate and the climate change wars have been so dominant in Australian politics for a decade. Everyone knows that. We've talked about it even with you a million times on this podcast. It's such a big theme. I thought the way that Labor responded this week was really... I don't know. It seems like they're a little all over the shop, or, or they're really not quite haven't quite worked out what their line's going to be on, on all of this. Uh, one of the things that emerged is that clearly they plan to go to the election um, without a sort of target for reducing emissions by twenty thirty or twenty thirty five. They want to get to net zero emissions by twenty fifty, which the coalition hasn't signed up to. But clearly, as you say, everyone wants to happen. Uh, state governments have signed up to it. New South Wales has signed up to it. What do you make of the way Labor's positioned on this? Because gas did have the potential to really split them, but it seemed if you listen to Mark Butler, for instance, a frontbencher in this area, speak to Frank Kelly, it seems that perhaps there's been a shift here. Yeah, look, I think the problem with everything in you know in politics is we're always fighting the last war. They lost the last election. They're worried about the policies they had. They're worried they're too complicated. I think that they should actually look at the present and think you can't make any bets about the future on this. You know, everyone is going to try and gather that patch of ground where they think that they will get the mood of the people coming out of the biggest crisis that anyone has experienced in the last hundred years in this country. Uh, the political ground will be completely different. I think there is a huge opportunity there for those people who want to say there is a renewable future for Australia on a sensible pathway. I mean, the problem I have with all of this is, you know, I've been tarred with for years because I've been pointing to problems in integration in South Australia with the brush that, oh, you must necessarily be opposed to renewable energy. That is not true. The only thing I'm saying is we have to try and work out what the pathway is because Australia, back at the turn of the last century, decided it would be a high-wage economy and that was a wonderful thing. We can thank the Labor movement for that and the High Court, by the way, in putting in place a system that made sure we were a high-wage economy. But we were always a cheap energy economy. Mm. Now we are a high-wage, high-energy economy. That doesn't add up. It's, It's absolutely crippling manufacturing. So we have to work out how we do have a pathway to a future that gives us all good jobs with reasonably priced power. And I think it's possible if we just put down the, the cudgels for a while and said, look, you know, it, we, we, we need to work in this direction. We've got to make the change. It's absolutely imperative for the future of the planet that we do it. Uh, what's the most sensible way to go in the quickest possible way? 
Yeah, and just get on with it because, you know, yes, we've had sheet power for so long, so much coal, so much gas. We've got more sun and more wind too than most places. So mm. it's all there. Chris, And we'll just, crack it. We'll crack this technology, by the way. I'm sure we will. Yeah, technology mm. is just a matter the answer, of time. I think, though. I'm pretty much betting it's not going to be carbon capture and storage, but, hey, you can pick me up on that <laughs> if that ever changes. That's another day. That's another day. Um, Chris, it's been great having you with us. Just before you go, budget in two and a half weeks away. It's going to be bigger than Ben-Hur, this budget. Do you have a sense of, you know, a centrepiece or is it going to be just too much to even think about a, a theme? <laughs> Oh, look, I think that, look, yeah, obviously tax cuts, incentives for businesses to try and drag some of the money that's in the world into Australia. Obviously, we're going to look towards more sovereign capacity in Australia. So expect that all to be part of it. And again, look, the big issue is we're in the midst of a crisis now. So everyone needs to start designing what they imagine a future Australia looks like. And if I was the Labor Party now, I think I'd be prepared to take a pretty big risk that the government isn't going, it would be riven inside the government about spending too much money. I think I'd be taking a big risk on a large industry policy which said, look, there are a whole series of things that simply have to be made here. We're an island continent. We've seen what happens in a crisis. Uh, Let's make some more bets on manufacturing. Let's find a way to power it that's clean and as green as we possibly can. And, uh, you know, I think I'd be looking for for a very big pitch if I was the Labor Party. It's right in their alley where I think what's going to be the problem with the coalition is they'll get wrapped around industrial relations reform, which they probably can't deliver. They'll do nips and tucks on taxation, which, you know, probably won't deliver what they need, looking for some business investment. So I, I think, you know... What happens in the next 12 months will will be absolutely defining for both these parties. And it's it's a completely open game. On the other side of this crisis, who knows what politics will look at? My fear is it gets polarised, more polarised around the world. It gets angrier. It gets uglier. Uh, and gee, it's bad enough now. We don't need any more of that. No, say goodbye to the ugliness. But I, I've got to say goodbye to you, which isn't the ugliness, is the loveliness. See you, Chris. <laughs> Lovely to agrees. have your podcast. <laughs> See you, Chris. Thank Thanks. You. Time for us to say goodbye, PK. But before we go, heads up on an RN podcast we've been absolutely loving here at the Party Room. It's RN's This Working Life, hosted by Lisa Leong. It's a great look at the way we work and the reasons why we work the way we do. Yeah, it brings together experts from the world of business who can help you thrive rather than just survive at work, although there's a bit of survival during COVID, isn't there? And it's all done without the jargon or the hype and uh, I'm going to sign up to any jargon that's removed from anywhere. It's called This Working Life and you can check it out wherever you normally get your podcasts, like where you got this, because you're listening to a podcast right now. A great podcast. Yep. This Working Life, less jargon, even some jokes in there. That's all from us this week, PK. Now, Fran, you're off just for a couple of weeks, so we'll be here next week uh, with a special guest, uh, but we'll be back very soon to tell people all about the budget as well. See you, Fran. Yeah. Having a holiday before the budget. See you, PK. After another school shooting in America, the NRA were under a barrage of scrutiny and criticism. There is a clear crisis. And Donald Trump surprised everyone by promising to make changes to America's gun laws. But little did Donald Trump know, the legendary gun rights organisation was weaker than ever before, and he really did have a chance at beating them. 
That's the latest episode of America If You're Listening, a podcast with me, Matt Bevan, about how Donald Trump changed the United States and the world. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.